Luke chapter 1, let's look at verses 31 to 33. Luke 1, verse 31. Gabriel said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Today we're focusing, we have been focusing this month on who Jesus is. When we focus on who Jesus is, that, just doing that, that glorifies the Lord. That glorifies the Lord. But sadly, we can tend to yawn at that. And we might even say, well, what's the significance on focusing on Jesus? What's the significance of that for me? How's that practical to me? Now let's just stop and think a minute. What are we doing there? We're saying that focusing and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and all that he is, that that's not good enough. And we have to turn our focus where? To ourselves. Um, we are not awed by who God is. We are not satisfied with who God is. We are not thrilled with the Lord alone. We need, we are saying we need something else other than him. That is just, just plain idolatry. We must find as Christians our thrill, our hope, our joy, our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you focus on Christ, that is going to direct your life. That is going to fuel your life. That is, as it were, the gasoline, or if you prefer, the diesel that keeps your, your spiritual life going. He created you to reflect His glory. He died for you so that you will live for Him. He lives and He's coming again. Where would you be without Jesus Christ? You would be without hope. And so it is entirely right for us to focus on who He is. We have looked at the past few weeks of three or two particular characteristics or offices that are said about Him. The first that we looked at is He is the prophet. He's the one prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. A greater prophet than I will come. And the response that people must have to Jesus is to hear him and heed him. It is not enough to just hear what he says. You must heed what he says. Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the atoning priest. He's the prophet and he's the priest. He's the one who died for sinners, who became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And because he's the promised, the predicted priest, you must trust in him and him alone and go through him and him alone. Today is Jesus as the coming king. When I talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus is the coming king, I shared how since the, well, since the 300s, no, that was a couple years ago, wasn't it? Since the 300s, and especially by one of the Protestant reformers, John Calvin, this has been understood as Jesus is the king of the church. He's the king of believers' hearts. Now, I appreciate a lot of what, uh, I think it was Eusebius, I might be wrong in the guy in the 300s, and especially what John Calvin has written. I disagree with him there. Imagine that. 
We disagree with a Christian brother or teacher, okay? That happens, doesn't it? Um, but they have taught that Jesus is the king of the church, rules in the church, rules in Christians' hearts. And when you listen to men teach this today, they are often very articulate. That means they speak very well. And when they teach about this, they are very reverent and how they speak about the Lord as the king of the church. They're very serious about that. And you know, where, you know what? That is absolutely right to do. We must be careful. A teacher must be careful what he says and how he says it. This is not a time and a place for telling jokes. If you've been in my home, you know me, folks. I like to goof around. But right now, when we are talking about the Lord Jesus, and we are talking about his word, this is not a time for playing around. We must handle his word seriously. But just because someone's articulate and serious and reverent doesn't mean that they're right. And they're going to say the same thing about, guess who? Me. <laughs> Welcome to life. This isn't what makes you a Christian, but it is a serious thing. I want us to first consider, if you're following along in your bulletin there, what did God say about Mary's baby? We read this passage, Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. Now you might say, well, Gabriel spoke. Gabriel was an angel, and angels are God's messengers. They speak God's message and do his bidding. What did God say about Mary's baby? He said five things. Look at the text here. The first thing he said is, you will have a son, verse 31. You will have a son. Now, it's capitalized. It might be capitalized in your Bible, and so we automatically think this is the second person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son. And so that is what it's talking about. Well, yeah, you can't, divide, you can't divide the natures from the person. But that's not, the, the point here is that Mary's going to conceive and bear a baby boy. That's the point here. You're going to have a son. The second thing that God says here, you will call his name Jesus. Call his name Jesus. No deliberation. What are we going to name this baby? No getting out the Bible name books or searching online or seeing how you know, creative can we get with naming our child. Why did they name him Jesus? Why, why were they told to name his name Jesus? Well, in Matthew 1, which we read earlier, it tells us why. The angel said to Joseph, Mary had conceived, and then the angel, God, told Joseph, this is your job as the legal uh, head of your family. You will name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. A third thing that's said here about, that God says about Mary's baby. He will be great, verse 32. He will be great. Now, what is meant by great? You look it up in the dictionary, and it can mean a lot of different things. It depends on the what, the context. So this could talk about size. Great muscles. No, that doesn't apply to me. Some of our young men, that applies to. It could be great number, a great number of children or grandchildren. It can talk about remarkable, 
those children or grandchildren made a great mess. It can refer to approval. Lunch was great. These are not the meanings here. The idea here is he will be great. He will be chief. He will be preeminent above all. He will be preeminent above all. We know it's not talking about his physical size. It's his physical appearance. Because when we read in Isaiah 53 uh, last week, there was nothing in him that was attractive. Nothing that set him apart from other men. He was just a normal looking human man. A fourth thing that God said about Mary's baby. He will be son of the highest. Verse 32. Son of the highest. Very God of very God. God in the flesh. You could write down Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. Where it says there that in him all the fullness of the Godhead all the fullness of deity dwells in him. But especially the fifth thing that's said about Jesus here by, about God, by God about to Mary, is that he will be the king of Israel. After you write that down, if you're writing it down, the king of Israel, I'm going to have you add a couple adjectives to Israel. He is the king of ethnic national Israel. He is not called the king of the church here. God, Gabriel, is talking about national ethnic Israel. And I'm not putting my interpretation on it because let's listen to the scripture, verse 32. He will be great and will be called son of the highest. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Note verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is where the interpretive problems begin. And you just kind of have to scratch your head and say, why? There weren't any interpretive difficulties of the previous four. You're going to have a boy. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be great. Um, he'll be son of the highest. But when it comes to this, well, suddenly we need to spiritualize that. This isn't actual Israel. It's something different than that. Everybody's on board with literal interpretation for the first four, first four, but when they get to that fifth one, they, they jump off the train. You say, I don't want to be on that route anymore. What did God say here? He said, I will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. David's throne over Israel forever. Write down, and we'll get to this, but 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 16. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Where God promised David, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This isn't a spiritual rule from the Davidic throne in heaven. David's throne is not in heaven. David's throne will be in Jerusalem. The Father's throne is in heaven. Those are the distinctions God makes in the Bible, and we need to recognize those. One other thing I'd have you recognize here, and I'd have you write down uh, one, uh, two passages from 2 Chronicles. The first is 2 Chronicles 6.16. 2 Chronicles 6.16. And then 2 Chronicles 7.18. So 6.16 and 7.18. And 2 Chronicles 6 and 7. Solomon is leading the nation and dedicating the temple to God. Remember, David wanted to build the temple? 
Nathan said, go and do all that's in your heart. But God said, no, you better not. You can't do that now. I will raise up a son. He will build the temple. That's exactly what happened here in 2 Chronicles 6. Solomon built it, and they're dedicating it to the Lord. And Solomon says this in 6.16 and then in 7.18. He talks about the throne of his father David. And then he says in 7.18, the throne of the kingdom of Israel. Two statements said together that are parallel. They're meaning they're referring to the same thing. The throne of David is the throne of Israel. That's what God in the Old Testament said. That's how David understood it. That's how Solomon understood it. And our understanding of the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. It continues. There's no changing or reinterpretation of it. This is the baby that Mary expected to have. And Gabriel told her these things. Often when couples find out that they're pregnant, they get an ultrasound. They get an ultrasound to find out, is it a boy or a girl? Will it be boys and girls? Will it be a boy and a girl? They get an ultrasound to find out. Now, Mary didn't have the opportunity for an ultrasound, but what did God tell her? God told her the gender. God told her you're going to have a boy. You're going to have a child. It's going to be a boy. You're going to name him this, and this is his career. This is his calling. This is what he will do. Now, with a bookmark here in Luke 1, Let's go to the next point here. What is all this based on? What is all this based on? Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. What God says through Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1 is based particularly on promises that God made to Abraham and God made to David in the Old Testament. Does God keep his promises, Christian? He sure does. There's no changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He fulfills what he says. He doesn't change it. What did God promise Abraham? Chapter 12, 12 verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. What promises did God make to Abraham? Three, particularly. The first, from you, you will have physically innumerable descendants, physical descendants from Abram. And this is ethnic Israel. A second thing that God promised Abraham, that those descendants will live in an actual tract of land. Israel, Canaan, the Holy Land. A third thing that God promises, that through Abram's descendant, blessing would come to all humanity. You will have innumerable descendants living in a specific, definite, real tract of land, and through one of those descendants, the entire world and all humanity will be blessed. And years later, 
you want to write it down, Genesis 17, verses 6 to 8, years later, God reaffirmed this promise and he said, from you, kings will come. God made promises to Abraham. Number two, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 now. We look at those promises that God made to King David. Second Samuel chapter 7. So remember, David wanted to build the Lord a temple. Nathan initially said, yeah, go ahead, do it. But then the Lord uh, told Nathan, go tell David, no, it's not for you to do that. And then God, through Nathan, spoke to David some things here. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises David some specific things here. He will have a dynasty that continues. A dynasty that will rule. A dynasty that will rule over Israel. And we see the three necessary aspects of a kingdom here. Three necessary aspects of a kingdom. You have a ruler. That's the house of David. You have a ruler. There is also a realm. R-E-A-L-M. Definite people, a nation that is ruled. And then thirdly, um, if you want to put it in one word, it would be ruling or the act of ruling. The ruler actually ruling over his realm. He exercises supreme control, absolute authority, and power. David was that over Israel. David was the ruler over Israel from his throne exercising supreme authority, command, and rulership. And all that was promised to David's future descendants with one significant difference. Verse 13 and verse 16. The significant difference is forever, forever, forever. I encourage you to look at a couple psalms that David wrote that give his fleshing out, that teaching more about this covenant that God made with David. There are three psalms in particular. There's Psalm chapter 2, there's Psalm 72, and there's Psalm 89. You will have a great blessing studying those psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and Psalm 89 for David's exposition of the Davidic covenant. So with all this in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're seeking to answer the question, what is the, the 
What is it based on? God's, what God said to Mary about the baby she would have. Luke chapter 1. What do we read about Jesus here? Verse 32. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you remember the three, this is Bible quiz time, the three aspects of a kingdom? You have a ruler, a realm, and the exercise of rule. What do we read here? Do we have a ruler? Yep, Jesus from the seed of David. Will he have a realm over which he rules? Yep. We read here the house of Jacob, his kingdom. What about the exercise of rulership? He will rule over the house of Jacob. Remember that fourth thing that David couldn't do, that Solomon couldn't do, that Hezekiah couldn't do? The duration of it forever and forever and ever. And what do we read here? Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? And of his kingdom there will be... Wow. God fulfills his promises, doesn't he? Denying any aspect of God's of Jesus' promised anticipated rule in the future, that means you have to deny the past, what happened in the past, what God said in the past, what God did in the past. What God said is going to happen, it's based on what he said and did in the past. We need to learn from that and understand what he's, all, all he says from that viewpoint. Next point. So, when, Je- when King Jesus comes again to the earth and sits on his throne, because that didn't happen, did it, in his first coming? It didn't happen. What will the exercise of his rule be like? Well, with all these questions, we don't have enough time to really uh, get into all of it. So I'm going to give you just a quick overview on some things. There is actually going to be universal peace on the earth, just like what God promised to Abraham. There is actually going to be universal goodwill toward men. Does this bring any Christmas hymns to mind? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's just a wish and a hope. It's just words that are said to get you in the Christmas spirit. But friends, brothers and sisters, these are promises God made to his people. And he intends on fulfilling. And when Jesus comes, there will be peace on earth and goodwill will be experienced and expressed from people to people. Another thing that Jesus will do, he will bring every believing Jew back to the land. I didn't draw your attention to Jeremiah 31 and the promises of the new covenant, but God said he's going to do that. He will bring every believing, living Jew, when Christ comes back, back to Israel. He is going to establish Israel as a literal, political nation. And it will have the supremacy over every other nation. The Old Testament talks about how the nations will stream to Jerusalem. They'll send gifts to the Jerusalem and to the king that's there. The Levites will be purified and offer right worship to the Lord. Climate catastrophes will cease. Were you hoping for some snow for Christmas? Did you get a little bit more than anticipated and hoped for? It was kind of cold out there. It is kind of cold out there. 
the entire world's ecosystem and environment will be a perfect balance. And what's going to be the effect of that? Crops will grow so fast that the reapers can't keep up. They'll be reaping and sowing and they're going to be overlapping year round. God will cause the rain to fall at just the right time. Disease, decay, and accidents will cease and stop. This is all promised in the Old Testament prophets. Jerusalem will be the world capital in politics and religion. And you might say, yeah, but what about Satan and demons? There's, they cause lots of problems. What's going to happen to Satan and demons when Jesus comes and rules in the earth? They're thrown in a spiritual imprisonment, a bottomless pit, for a thousand years. Imagine a world with Jesus, King Jesus, ruling on earth, all these things happening, and no evil influences occurring at all. And Israel's enemies that we read about in Isaiah 40, do you remember how they were described? A drop in the what? Drop in a bucket. That's what they are to God. They're a drop in a bucket. This is Psalm 2. The enemies scream and cry out against the Lord and His anointed. But he who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs at them. And so kiss the Son, worship Him, lest you perish. You might say, well, what about the church? Where's the church going to be? Ah, the church doesn't have a secondary place in that coming kingdom. The church is the bride of Christ. We will come from heaven with Christ and we will be His bride and we will be ruling with Him over that kingdom. Next point. Was this all part of the first church's message? You might be saying, I don't remember reading about this in the, the, in the book of Acts. And I would say, I think the reason we don't read it, we didn't see it, is because for nearly the entire history of the Christian church, people have viewed the kingdom as what? The church. Or ruling in the hearts. And so that's programmed our thinking. We don't have time to walk through the whole book of Acts. And so I'll give you some passages and I'll tell you what they talk about. But I want you to see these. And let this, let the Scripture speak for itself. Okay? So first, Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and verse 36. Peter's first sermon. Peter said, Jesus was the one that David spoke of, the Christ who will sit on his throne. It didn't, it didn't say there, the Christ who is on his throne. It says the Christ who will sit on his throne. Number two, Acts chapter 3, verse 20. Acts chapter 3, verse 20. Peter again says that though Jesus Christ suffered and died, he was raised from the dead and he is coming and will establish his kingdom. Number three, Acts chapter 4, verse 26. Acts chapter 4, verse 26. After the believers were persecuted, you know what they did? They quoted Scripture and they're praying. And you know what Scripture they quoted when they said the rulers are gathered together against their Lord and their Christ? They quoted Psalm 2. A messianic psalm. Number 4. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. Philip preached concerning the kingdom and Jesus. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Number five, chapter nine, verse 20 and 22. Chapter nine, verse 20 and 22. Immediately after Paul was saved, what did he preach? He preached the Christ, the Messiah. He preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I'm putting some things in your mind because I'm emphasizing his name, the Christ, but I'm going to explain a little bit. And that word has a lot loaded into it. It's like a shotgun shell. It has a lot that's in there to accomplish its purpose. Number six, chapter 10, verse 36. Chapter 10, verse 36. They told how God told Israel that they would have peace through Jesus Christ. Israel would have peace through Christ. Number seven. This is all throughout the book of Acts. So just as an example, you could have Acts chapter 16, verse 31. They told Jews, they told Gentiles, believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Is that what they usually said? They would say, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Number eight, chapter 17, verse three. Chapter 17, verse three. They explained and showed from Scripture that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Number 9, chapter 18, verse 5 and verse 28. Chapter 18, verse 5 and verse 28. They testified to the Jews, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And right at the end of the book, Chapter 28, verse 31, Paul's in a Roman prison, a Gentile prison. And he preached the kingdom of God and taught the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Another Bible quiz question. First one's easy. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? You better get this one right. Luke wrote that, right? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke wrote that one. It's parts one and two. And he wrote them one right after the other. Who wrote Luke, who wrote, who wrote Luke 1, verses 31 to 33 that we read earlier? You will bear a son to call his name Jesus. He will rule forever. Who wrote that? Luke. And then when Luke wrote Acts, talking about the Christ and the kingdom, and the Savior. What he wrote, he's writing with consistency. He didn't mean one thing in his gospel, and then, oh, you know what? Really, when you get to the church, we need to spiritualize what I wrote here. Don't take it literally. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on at all. That's the basis for what he wrote in the book of Acts. And you need to read it that way, as he intended. Then your next point, the significance for Jesus Christ. The significance for Jesus Christ. So yeah, go on the inside of your bulletin there. My point in running through that, is the name is the word Christ kind of one of Jesus' names? Yeah, it is. But it's, it's not his last name. Like Joe Smith. Or Dan Greenfield. Let me give you an example. We call him the Lord Jesus. That's who he is. Lord 
is a title. It is a title loaded with meaning and significance. When you call him Lord, there's reverence, there's awe, it's a recognition he is God. So when we call Jesus the Lord Jesus, we are saying he is the eternal Lord and God, the creator and sustainer of all things. In the same way, when he is called in scripture, Jesus, what? Christ, that is who he is. But Christ is a title loaded with meaning and significance that Luke didn't make up. It's all from the Old Testament. Israel's Messiah, Israel's King. And when you read your New Testament this way, just stop and think. We're, you know, we're so used to saying Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. And has sadly gotten so much a part of our society. It's used as swear words. It's used as exclamations of surprise. And that is taking the Lord's name in vain. When you read in Scripture, in your New Testament, Jesus Christ, stop and think. Jesus, that's his human name. Christ, that's that messianic title. He's the ruler of, of Jacob and Israel that Luke talked about, that Gabriel said in Luke 1, 32 and 33. You need to think that way. And so what does this all mean practically for you? Your last, our last point here. What does this all mean practically for us? Because there is a practical significance to it. Well, first, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is just not, he is a human person. He was a historic personality. He was an actual human being. But he is not just that. He is God in the flesh, defeated sin and death, coming again to, to rule and to judge. And you must believe in him, submissively love him, depend on him, because he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Jesus is Lord of your life. Note the verb that I use there. He is Lord of your life. If you are a genuine, real Christian, you do not, after you become a Christian, decide at some point, you know what, I need to make Jesus Lord of my life. No. What must you, who must you believe in in order to be saved? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and what's the result? You will be saved. He is Lord of your life. So the question is, how's that looking right now, Christian? There is coming a day when you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you will give an account for how you have lived as a Christian. Think about the gospel message that you proclaim, that you teach and tell people. It has to be God's truth. And part of that truth is that this Savior who died, who rose again, who ascended to heaven, it doesn't stop there. Essential to the gospel, he is coming again. He will rule. He will judge the world. Christian, your greatest enemies hate you because you're a Christian. They hate you not really because of you. They hate you because of Christ. And that's Psalm 2. And so you take confidence in that. 
They're not really, I'm not really, you're not really the target. Christ is the target. The Messiah is the target. And he defeated your greatest fears through his death and his resurrection. Remember what Paul said? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? That's our victory. Christian, think about this. Every time you pray, every time you pray, you are praying to, and you are praying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has authority, Matthew 28, 18. He had, 28, 18. He has authority over everything. That's the one that you're praying to. And that's whose name you're praying in. Read your Bibles, recognizing the, the meaning and the significance of this. It will really bless, be a blessing to your, your reading. One last thing for you as a Christian. Often we say, when you're on Jesus' side, you're on the winning side. I would submit to you, it's a lot more than that. A lot more than that. Because when you return with Christ, you are part of his returning army. Revelation chapter 19. Coming down from heaven. When he will put an end to all rule and authority and power. He will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Christian, that's who is in you now. If you're a Christian... Jesus Christ is dwelling in you. That's who's in you now. And that's who's always with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is coming again. His rule will be universal. It will be dominating and it will be eternal. I know some of you don't like classical music. That's okay. God will forgive you. I'm joking. I love listening to the Messiah year-round, especially at Christmas. But we often think the Messiah, uh, Handel's Messiah, is one of those Christmas things. It's not just about his birth. It traces his whole life. Yes, his incarnation and his birth, but also his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And what's the most well-known aspect of Handel's Messiah? That one where you all stand up. Hallelujah. Oh, you know, that's when we all stand up. What, why do they sing that? Why do they sing hallelujah? What, why do they keep singing that? I'm not going to try to sing it for you. And I have suggested since we'll be in our own building next Christmas, we should do the Messiah for our community as a church. What do you think of that? No. I'm not going to try to sing it. But when they go through those hallelujahs, why do they sing that? And it's all quoting scripture. He says why? Hallelujah. For, because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings. Lord of lords. Forever and ever. And ever and ever. That should cause, just thinking about the truth, should cause you to have a tingling feeling. Even so, Lord, come quickly. 
My favorite one of the Messiah is the last one. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to be slain, to, to be, that was slain and hath redeemed us to, the, to God by His power to receive honor and glory and power and wisdom and strength and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him who sitteth on His throne forever. This is who we are focusing on today. Praise the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.